It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with writer-director Jesse V. Johnson. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is a true rising star director in the action film world. Uh, Though to call him a rising star truly doesn't do him justice. His work in stunts is prolific and has led him to work with some of the best and brightest over the past three decades and on some of the biggest films to grace the silver screen in that time period. Uh, His new film, One Ranger, starring Thomas Jane, hit theaters this month. And here to chat about it all is the man himself, the wonderful Jesse V. Johnson. Jesse, welcome to the show. Hi, David. How are you? Very happy to be here. So you've had such an exciting career spanning different roles all across the film business. But if I'm correct, looking at your CV, you started as a third AD. How did you get into the film industry and what events led up to your job on Nightbreed? On Nightbreed? Uh, I, I started actually a little before that. I was a, a, a runner. Yeah, a third AD, I guess. You know, a, a third AD is a union position. So I was a non-union set PA who is someone who basically makes cups of coffee. And I learned very, very quickly that <laughs> the, the best way to get out of that was by making bad coffee. So I, you know, that you didn't get asked to make coffee again and you got shunted to another, another uh, position or job or requirement and were able to learn something a little more interesting. Uh, but yeah, I, I, my family were in the business. My grandfather provided horses for movies, Ryan's daughter and Jabberwocky and, Monty Python and that sort of thing. And then uh, they had a film uh, that came in that wanted a particularly uh, aggressive horse. And my uncle, uh, who uh, was the only person that could ride it at the time, was chosen to ride it. And he doubled Sophia Loren. And so he got into the business. He's since become one of the top sort of second unit directors and stunt coordinators in the game. He's won an Oscar and a Lifetime Achievement Award from BAFTA. And that's Vic Armstrong. So he gave, he was doing... uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I was still at high school. I would have been fourteen or fifteen years old, uh, and went and I'd visited the set a lot of times. I knew that I I loved, I loved movies. I loved the process of making films. The smell of of the glue that they use for the fiberglass when you get to Pinewood Studios or something that still I still smell it, and it reminds me of those early days of visiting the set and being on set. But uh, I, I said, I'll do anything. And, 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 you know, he came from the generation where people left school at 14 or 15. So I don't think it was a, a huge sort of thing for him. And I went off and I, I carried his stunt bags on Indiana Jones and, uh, and The Last Crusade. Initially, I think I had to go, go back to school and take some of those, you know, pesky exams that you have to take. Uh, and then came back out again and got a job as a PA. Uh, I did a film called Getting It Right with John Gilgood and Peter Cook. Uh, and then went from that to Nightbreed. What eventually drew you to action films specifically? I mean, it's such an interesting genre in multiple respects with its own unique cinematic language and style. Right. Uh, early on, I mean, you know, it was uh, as a as an assistant director, I was being hired in the U.S. primarily for films, and I'll get to your question, uh, that had large, large extras numbers. So they called me for Shawshank Redemption, which had between... 400 and 2,500 extras, uh, How to Make an American Quilt, which was at, at a high school, uh, so I think two, 300 extras, Mr. Holland's Opus, which was, you know, we, we shot through the summer in Portland, Oregon at a high school. Again, it's two to 300 extras. Uh, 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 the Birdcage, which was Robin Williams' uh, uh, picture, again, with sort of 150 to 75 per day of uh, sort of cross-dressing dancers, which was, which was quite fun and extras people watching and so I, I began to get myself sort of a name for for being able to direct large numbers of extras in the background and and, and love doing it and be there and really get myself busy with getting the guys in through makeup and wardrobe and hair but you know it's a very very hard job you're there from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and i was i also part of that particular position on a film set is signing the stuntmen in and out on what's called the Exhibit G, which is their SAG paperwork, their union paperwork. And on that, I would see what they were making for their overtime and their stunt adjustment, which is the uh, extra bump you get if you do an actual stunt. Uh, And so (laughs) after doing that a few times and you're realizing they're making more in a day than you're making in a week or two, uh, I began to sort of think that maybe I was was chasing the the wrong chalice. 
uh, most assistant directors tend to become producers anyway. Uh, the, it's a misnomer to say an assistant director because really they're an assistant to the producer and, and, and the production manager. And it's a very, uh, it's a clerical position in many ways. There's a little bit of artistry in it when you're doing the background, but beyond that, it's watching the numbers, watching the hours, making sure the actors are, are going through the various different steps to get ready to, to film. Uh, and so I was becoming a little frustrated with it anyway. I had trained in martial arts and motorcycles and horses and all that kind of stuff in the UK, because that's where my, my family were uh, specializing stunts and action. So in the US, it became sort of, it, it was a little bit of a transition. It took about six months to a year to, to really to really get the SAG card and get started. But SAG, stunts was where I really, really sort of felt at home. It was closer to directing. Uh, than, than assistant directing was, you were taking actors and you were winning their confidence and you were talking to them on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you know. So all of that fear that you might have of a, of a famous actor goes away and you start talking to them as a normal person and realizing they have fears, neurosis and paranoia, just like anyone else does, and, and you're calming them down, allowing them to take uh, have faith in you in that they're going to be safe or not burnt or wrecked in a car wreck or you know, have a horse fall on them. So that that was really great practice for learning to instill confidence in an actor that you have on a set, you know, where your challenge is merely dramatic, you know. Uh, so I, I actually I actually found it very stimulating and, and, and a lot closer to directing. Uh, so it, it served a really good intro. And I did that for quite a few years. Uh, it pays very very well you can travel an awful lot and uh and to be honest it, everyone's timing is is different and uh when you look back you go oh that was perfect because i got to work with kenneth browner with with pt anderson with with james cameron with spielberg and i got to watch them at the time i was chomping at the bit wanting to direct my own movies wanting to get out there but but you look back and you realize that was possibly one of the greatest training grounds imaginable short of uh, an incredible film school that could afford to have those kind of people come in and give lectures, which is, you know, it, it, when you're sitting next to the monitor with one of those directors and you're watching their process, listening to it day in, day out, it's, it, it's un, unreal. You have to open yourself up to learn because obviously you're supposed to be focused by, on a particular job and you can't be geeking out and sort of becoming a nerd and asking questions. That's not the place or the time to do that, but you're watching uh, respectfully, and 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 it's a fabulous learning ground. Really, really good. I had had a chance to direct a couple of low-budget features when I worked with some of those bigger ones, and I realised, oh my god, I've 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 literally been doing this wrong. They are far more uh, loyal to the to the process of making the character correct, to making the script correct, than they than they are to keeping the budget on schedule or anything. I think that that's that's all lesser. That doesn't matter. And it's not because they have a lot of money, but it's just not a priority. Whereas I came from the school of second unit direction and action directing, where everything is about getting the most setups and doing it in the minimum amount of time. And it's not really very creative. And and so it was a it was a really eye-opening sort of experience for me to to work with those guys. What what technically classifies something as a true action film in your mind? I mean, lots of movies have actions, explosions, etc., but that doesn't necessarily make them action films, right? I, I don't know. I, I I don't think of them as action films. I try and find something else in there. There has to be a motivator beyond the action. It's not just the action sequences. What happens is I find a script that I love. I find characters in that script in a scenario that I want to be involved with for a year and a half, you know, the time that it takes to gestate, start, develop, shoot, and then, and then finish and deliver a film. I have to be in love with them for a year and a half. That's quite a, that's quite a long amount of time. So I have to love those characters. I have to love the script, mainly the characters. And uh, then I sit down and I, once, you know, things are starting to bubble and go, then I look at the action sequences within that and we develop them the best that we possibly can. And we make them big or, or small and, and violent, or, you know, you, we think very, you know, with my, my team, we work on all of that and we work out what we can do, but very, very rarely. In fact, for me, zero, never have I been attracted to a script simply because of the action or because it is this, it, that's not, how it works for me. I, I don't know how to work that way. For me, it's just about the characters and who I'm working with, whether he's a you know Irish Republican terrorist on the run in Indochina in 1950, or you know, in this case, a fish out, you know, a, a Texas Ranger who's sent to London, or you know, a, a English mobster looking for redemption, you know, amongst his old cohorts. I, I'm drawn to the characters 
that I can hang the action scenes on uh, and they are secondary. They have to be secondary uh, always. You know, if, pe- if you ask people what their favorite action film is, you know, or their action sequences, they'll describe films to you, which are invariably beautifully made films with great characters. You know, in the old days, when you asked anyone, what was your favorite car chase? They say, oh, bullet, bullet, of course. You realize in bullet, you're waiting 45 minutes for that car chase, 45 minutes of character development, story development, people talking, silences, beautiful 60s music, a a party scene with Steve McQueen and his girlfriend that goes on interminably where they're playing the flute. And then finally, you have this incredible car chase, which is great. It's wonderful, but it's what, eight or 11, you know, eight minutes long. It's not very, you know, it's, it's, you've, you've had to wait for that, you know, uh, the same with Fight Club, you know, or, you know, it's only recently we've done these films. So there's a, you know, there's, it's, it's nonstop, you know, five to six minutes, it, there's, there's action happening. The greats, you know, the ones that I truly consider the great marks of cinema, you, 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 were even you know were, were were balanced out with these beautiful stories with characters like John Wayne, uh, Howard Hawks's pictures, or John Ford's poetry, you know, uh, and then you'd have your action sequence, and of course you loved it because you loved the characters that you were watching. You know? Over here, we had John Wayne for decades as the action star in the U.S. During that same period, did Britain have anybody kind of similar? Oh, John Wayne was enormous in the U.K. He was everywhere. Yeah, I mean, he was a, you know, they, they adopted him for their own. I mean, my, I, I grew up sitting on my grandfather's lap watching John Wayne movies, you know, Jamie Stewart movies, uh, uh, Gary Cooper movies. They, they, there was no great distinction made. The English are very good at adopting whoever they feel like adopting, <laughs> you know, and disowning whomever they feel, feel like it. But they, but they you know, the, the, the Western heroes uh, were enormous. I mean, to the working class now, I, I I do remember a, a snobbery growing up in the UK towards westerns. Thankfully, that's vanished now because it's recognised as a high art form in its own right. You know, I I remember being asked when I was young who my favourite director was. At the time, as a teenager, it was Sergio Leone. You know, with this uh, spaghetti westerns. You know, his his three wonderful pictures with Clint and then the Once Upon a Time in the West. And I remember a bunch of film people who are older than me, adults at the time absolutely scoffing at that saying how could you possibly you know that it's rubbish it's terrible sweaty close-ups bad makeup it's only it's only in the 20 you know the late 20th early 21st century where people like tarantino who have admitted that you know the good the bad and the ugly is his favorite film ever made that that we now go back and we re-examine and then christopher frailing people like that who wrote these huge huge poems on you know on, on the study of Sergio Leone and and he's been recognized as an artist but in his lifetime you know only towards the very very end he was it was in the UK and in America it was uh he was scoffed you know it was it's it's an interesting thing but it is a wonderful wonderful uh form and, and by the working classes in the UK they loved it they they loved it you know they I believe they still do I, I'm not sure I haven't lived there in 30 years but when I grew up it was it was a very valid you know thing to to watch on a on a Saturday or Sunday, you know, whatever Western was showing. Were there any um action films or even films in general that have particularly inspired you or continue to inspire you when you write and direct your own movies? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. I mean uh I'm inspired by the work of certain directors, Don Siegel, who I love, who when I made One Ranger, this is a this is a, a love letter to his picture you know, Coogan's Bluff about an Arizona ranger, you know, having to come to San Francisco in the, in the height of the hippie sort of period. Uh, Don Siegel was a very interesting character uh, because he he was making B-movies for the longest time and very, very slowly, quite late in life, he he hooked up with Eastwood and his films became A-movies. But it was, it was it's a transition that's very, was very rare at the time to go from B-movie to A-movie. There's, an, uh, you know, his, his later pictures, Dirty Harry, you know, after you know, after Coogan's Bluff and, and Two Mules for Sister Sarah, pictures like like Dirty Harry and Escape from Alcatraz were genuine A-list movies, A movies with huge, huge, you know, fanfare surrounding them when they came out. Uh, and so I find his career very interesting. Samuel Fuller the same way, Bud Bodica the same way. You know, these were guys that were were scrappy street fighters and made pictures on the back lot the best that they possibly could in the shortest period of time that they could, but the most creative ways to tell a story with minimal budget, with minimal actors, with minimal horses, uh, really choosing their shots carefully uh, and and were able to 
to somehow work that into a huge career as an A-lister. He for for by Boudicca, he he met up with Randolph Scott, and then his pictures. You know, did I think five, five and seven pictures with Randolph Scott, and and the pictures were better each time, but but still lean and beautiful and 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 well made. Hawks, uh, Howard Hawks, I love. Raoul Walsh, I love. John Ford, I love. These these were guys that 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 took cinema to a level of poetry, you know, of of meaningfulness. You know, you you watch a picture that's ostensibly a revenge movie like The Searchers, and as a kid you watch it and you think these are great action scenes, and look at the way the guns firing and the shells are going off, and Indian. And then as you watch it later on, you cry because the the story has the ability to move you as an adult and turns your heart inside out because you realize you've been touched by someone who is who is so in touch with the human element, you know, like a true poet, you know. Uh, it's a, a, a movie as an onion, you know. There's a surface look of it, which is an action movie, and then as you peel back, it's there's so much more going on. This is the height of, this is the state of grace that every every filmmaker, you know, aspires to, I think. Well, it's interesting because you you mentioned, you know, Bullet earlier, you mentioned Fight Club earlier, where you have action scenes that are in a movie that, you know, has character development and has a storyline and has some substance to it, largely beyond just the action. But it almost seems as if, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into it now, that, that, that it, it, people's attention spans being different than what they were before, it almost seems as if now movies have to start almost with an action film. You look at like maybe, okay, let's say Tony Scott, you got Top Gun. The first thing, and I think they got to have some sort of action thing with the jets opening up the, the the movie, right? Do you think that's a result of maybe people's attention spans needing, they kind of wanting that to to grab the hook with something big first? Or I think you- there's two questions there. Two, yes. One's a statement, one's a question. The, yes, the, the, the first one is, yeah, there's an entre act to, to uh and you know an entrance act and since james bond it has been you know that bond did it so well it has become a staple of cinema so so much a staple that now when you read an action pulp novel it opens with the first seven page long entre act of action just to let you know what's going on and then you go back into the story as a a regular narrative but yeah james bond did it most fantastically It, it set 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 you know starts off with a bang and grabs you by the nose and doesn't let go and and you know it's cool it's it's a uh it's a, it's become a, a trope of the grammar of filmmaking and i think you have to be careful changing things like that otherwise you risk having your audience walk out after eight minutes going god it's no action because they're so pre-programmed to wait you know to expect an action scene that's going to lead them into more and more and more there's a natural rhythm that has become patented over 80 years or well, 100 years into making movies now really uh so there's a there's a rhythm every so often that people expect and if you purposely go against that rhythm and freeform like jazz you're going to lose a lot of your audience unless they're truly in love with you for example you have a huge actor in there who they're willing to take a risk with you know or a director like tarantino who they're willing to take a risk for and watch uh and then they'll come out saying oh one they think better of themselves because they feel they've watched an art film you've succeeded on every level but it's tricky for someone who's working with lesser budget to do that and still have them do it you know if you took a tarkovsky film now and released it under another name other than andre tarkovsky and you expected people to sit through that kind of a pacing i think you you lose your shirt you know people walk out on it they're beautiful films but you are investing in it because it's tarkovsky and you know what you're in for and it's going to be an investment that you can get up and go make a cup of tea and come back and you won't have missed anything you know uh but but yes you so so the first part, yes, there's the entreact, and I think that is a part of filmmaking now, and you kind of have to do that if you want, you know, if you, you're going to do it. It's okay. Have that. Have a little bit of a bang explosion at the beginning to keep them going. Uh, now, the other part of your question about whether the modern audience is requires something paced differently, uh, I think, I think, and it's a truly sad thing, I, th- I think uh, they called it the MTV generation when I was getting into movies that needed things a lot quicker we have an even worse problem now. We have a twofold one. The first is people are used to binging. If you're if you're binging a show, you're getting up and you're doing your 
emails and you're, you're having breakfast and you yep. can come back and watch it and it doesn't matter because none of it's that important it's 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 and if it was the art you know they've got a room full of writers who saying make sure we say this three times now this makes it really easy and fun and addictive to watch but it really is not challenging if you're if you're wanting you know like Hemingway said the great books challenge its reader as much as its writer uh and the same goes for truly great cinema uh, so binge watching is is causing an enormous problem to the pacing of films because if you want to do something truly taut in ninety minutes, where the information is dropped in tiny little you know breadcrumbs, a lot of audiences are simply going to miss that and they'll be left you know. That, now if they love the film, do no more the end of it enough, they may come back and then they'll like it. But quite often, what happens is the first set of reviews is awful. And then they come back and, and after three years, people say, this was the best film you've ever made, Jesse. I've, I've never, had, you know, but it takes a while to loosen them up. When you wrote and directed your first short film, Death Row, The Tournament, what did you realistically think would come of it? I, I mean, I believe you only had done, what, crude probably and stunt work up to that point. Yeah. Was it an issue you had to scratch or, or, or at some point in the process, do you think it might lead to something bigger? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, we, we had a theory, myself and Dominic Vandenberg, who was the lead in that. I'd met him on Mortal Kombat. Uh, he he wanted to become an actor and was prepared to pay a little bit of money to, to, to sort of have, you know, a wannabe director that was myself trying to get something going with him. So, we talked about what would be interesting. He was a martial artist, uh, politically, you know, death row inmates being forced to fight to the death. It's very old hat now because it's been done a lot of times. At the time, it was quite new. Uh, and we thought if we do this and we create it in such a way that it becomes uh, like a tournament that people are being invited to, it because, so we printed up incredible postcard flyers with death row the tournament. And then we had, I, I had, at the time I was working in stunts, so we had a lot of stuntmen friends. I had two guys that were enormous bouncer types, you know, 300 plus pound sort of guys. We put in black suits with their bouncer outfits and they went to the distribution companies with specially packaged invites saying, We've, we're not allowed to give this to a secretary. It has to go actually to Roger Corman. It has to go actually to the head of New Line. It actually, you know, and, and they refused to give these invites to anyone, but the, you know, and that I, you know, I paid him and it was actually it was actually an enormously successful short film and it, it got me development deals uh, with three of these little companies but we it took it took a lot of money it took a lot more money to to promote it that way than it did to make the film yeah. uh, and it was a fun it was a fun little 12 minute sort of short and it was a lot of action in it we got a lot of people working on it uh, but the main thing was realizing that it was how you sold yourself and how you sold the package. And that's, and that was the come away for me. So now looking back on it, it's a 12 minute short that's sort of interesting. You see a couple of camera moves in there that are quite cool that show a little bit of promise, but what you don't see is what I did with that short in terms of promoting it for the following, I think it was nine or 10 months. And, and it was frenzied. It was very good. We got lots of write-ups. It, it was in a lot of international trade magazines. It was in, uh, Total Film, which was a very, very difficult film to get in at the time with anything other than a studio film, an English one. And I got lots and lots of calls from that. Uh, and so it was it was a it was a really, you know, it was the start of everything for me, you know, in its own way. But before I get ahead of myself, you, you spent years working in, in we were talking about this earlier, years working kind of in stunts for some of the biggest and best in the industry, starting with Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger. How did how did that job come about? Uh, my uncle was directing second unit on it and I got a call and jumped on a plane and went to Mexico, Cherubusco Studios, 17 years old. And, uh, and I got killed over and over again. You know, it was a, uh, it was a brilliant experience. Uh, I, I did another film with Paul Verhoeven. Uh, the second one was Starship Troopers where I doubled Jake Busey. And, I, and on that one, I actually get, got to watch him because I was on, I ended up being on that film for about 14 months because I was on the development of the tanker bug at the beginning where they used me as a sort of dummy for getting eaten and riding the tanker bug through the shoot and then through to pickups and, and all the space stuff. I was one of the, you know, I was actually not one, I was about 13 or 14 of the various different astronauts that got blown out into space. So it was really, you know, great to watch Verhoeven. I'm still an enormous fan of his. He's one of, I think he's one of the, the greatest living directors and, you know, it, but unfortunately he's, his, his work will be recognized 
by generations to come, you know, less than it is right now, which is what you see when you see a true artist working. A lot of studied painters and, and so many and, and composers, so many of them were not recognized until long after they died. And it was it, comprehension of the, the actual, you know, effect that they've had on the art was was not fully realized. So you mentioned stars. Starship Troopers. Um, I mean, you you actually went on to work on a lot of truly cult classic films like Mars Attacks. You said Starship, Starship Troopers, Galaxy Quest, The Thin Red Line. I mean, there's there's literally probably hundreds of steps we could talk about. Which of your stunt jobs left the most impact on you? Uh, I filled in for my friend Garrett Warren on P.T. Anderson's The Master for, and it, and to watch P.T. Anderson up close. Was was an enormous, enormous gift. It reminded me what what it was that I loved about films and filmmaking, and what I really, truly wanted to do. Uh, it was someone who was fiercely dedicated to doing the film his way, you know, uh, and story, character, performance first. Everything else just didn't matter. And I thought that's so audacious, but so difficult to do. Uh, but having said that, uh, Spielberg and and Branagh as well were were just were just incredible to watch. You know, uh, Spielberg, like Ford, is a one or two take guy. Uh, I saw him do one, you know, two takes with Cruise, Tom Cruise, but I've, I never saw him do two takes, you know, of almost anything else. And that doesn't seem like much, but when you're talking about six hundred extras, moving camera, special effects, integrated blue screen, and it, and you know, and a camera that ends up on its back, looking up through the crowd as they're charging over it, and and in one take. I mean, admittedly, he's working with the best crews in the world and, and the best best talent, but still, the the sheer courage to do that and audacity, like 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 you know, and and at his at his age, and I hate to use that because you know that's not an excuse or uh, it doesn't mean anything but still to be working like a like a young you know you know tyro at, 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 in his 60s at that time it's in his 70s now i guess it's uh, for me it's just amazing it's you know we to understand it you have to kind of have done it a few times you have to have directed a few times to have the comprehension of how terrifying it is when you're sitting there going wondering should i do another take do i have what i need in the can I'm going to be sitting watching this film in front of all the and and to to look at it and go yep moving on good on, on the I, first, like, over and over again it's just just incredible it's an incredible thing it's a, it's an incredible pleasure watching him but like watching a John Ford film you're in tears at the end of it, not only because it's a wonderful film but because you know the height that this guy has taken the cinema to you're never going to get to and so it can also be frustrating working alongside a Spielberg uh, in the same way that watching John Ford is frustrating it's like I, w I watched Young Mr. Lincoln the other day, and it's a you know, it's a film about young Abraham Lincoln as a lawyer, and by the third act you're choking up, and it's utterly moving, and you're like, how did he do that with this material? How did he do that? How was he able to make me cry on my own watching this film about about a lawyer that doesn't? E it's not even about you know him as a president. You know, it's it's a it's such an incredibly moving film and it's caught you in, in a way that you least expect it. And you realize that that's the sheer genius of someone like John Ford, similar experience watching someone like Spielberg. It's fantastic, but to aspire to copy or to mimic or to be like that is a very dangerous path to go down. Watch it, enjoy it, take what you can from it, but you're going to have to find your own path because you, you cannot copy that, you know? I'm I'm still a little mentally hung up on the on the one take thing because it it just requires a remarkable amount of confidence because in in the stuff that I've that I've had to kind of direct even even when you think the first take might be the take there's still this tendency of going well let's do some insurance takes let's do this let's do that just in case or or a feeling I, like you might be able to improve on it there's always that feeling that's lurking in the back of your head. Well, we should do one more. We should just do one. More. Well, you know, okay, let's do two more. Let's do we'll I, give it I three am more. So with you, know you. I, mean? I am a hundred percent in your camp, and that's exactly <laughs> what I felt. Uh, we did Lincoln together again. Garrett Warren, who's who's one of who's at the moment probably the best uh, action unit director in in Hollywood. We did Lincoln together again. I worked as his sub subordinate on that, and we put together i think we put together 16 vignettes for the battle of stanford ferry uh we had 400 extras 
200 specialty extras and then on top of that another 40 or so stuntmen that we'd had to hire from all over america because you know to be skinny guys they had to be you know of a certain certain look uh now we showed those vignettes he chose eight of those vignettes and those were the eight vignettes that we shot that day in the field uh you know which became the battle of stamford ferry in the movie uh, which is it's just a blip in the film but there was a tremendous as you can imagine a tremendous amount of work that went into that from horses in the background teaching guys for two weeks to be able to fight with a bayonet and a sword uh and it came to the point where we were looking at each other going do you think he's actually looking at any of these or is it just the assistant director and we we came up with a, a multitude of sort of conspiracy theories of basically spielberg's now just sitting in a chair he's not really doing anything it's the whole team that do everything for him because your your mind works like that a little bit and you get to set and you realize that he's watched every single one. He knows exactly what's going on in each of the vignettes. He expects that to happen as we've shown it to him on the day. Uh, uh, and and that's what's going to, you know, one of them didn't go quite right. He said, oh, that's your take on to the next one. And we're like, no, 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 we can get it right in the next one. And, and, and I saw Garrett, it's like, don't, don't say anything, just just move on to the Because he's not going to, he's not going to do a second take of something that might not work a second time. That's, we didn't work the first time. We've had two weeks to get it right. And I, I realize now looking back on it, that's genius. You know, that's the, that's the way that works. But yeah, no, he knew everything that was supposed to be there. He'd seen, he'd, he'd seen the eight vignettes in detail. He'd watched us working for the last two weeks and he was very aware of what was going on uh, and expected it to happen as it was going to happen. And you get one, one take, everyone's on their toes. They know they've only got the one, no, no one person in that group of 40 stunt guys wanted to be the one to mess, mess it up. So yeah, everyone's at their, at their top and you get it done and it, it's in the can after one take and it's you're on. And now before I, I want to get into um, your work as a director and writer, but before I do that, I did want to ask you one more stunt question. What is, what is probably, what would you say is the hardest stunt you've ever had to perform or coordinate? I, I uh, it's car stuff because you, you have the, things are going fast. If anything goes wrong, people get hurt very, very quickly. Uh, stunt, stunt guy, is often the least vulnerable of all because he's sitting inside the vehicle. You have cameramen, you have a PAs, you have assistants, you have actors, extras that are standing around. Everything has to be, you know, especially if you have multiple vehicles. We had a, we had a truck driving through the Utah desert outside of Salt Lake, Salt Lake City. The truck is coming towards us, and we have a open top Cadillac, pink Cadillac, with four actors in it: two in the front, two in the back, and the car has to do a three hundred and sixty degree skid and then pass past the uh, truck and you're doing this and realizing you know you've got four actors that could be beheaded if you know four stunt people doubling those actors that can be beheaded if they don't if the car tips over so they have gra grab holders you know which, between their legs which are you know obviously uh, uh five point harnesses on you know that they can duck into the seat actually two point harness because you need to be able to yeah. duck forwards uh, you know, it's just so many things that can go wrong and, and you're constantly, constantly watching, watching the safety elements. But then you're also wanting to give the director exactly what he, he needs and requires for that stunt. So for me, the vehicle stuff, uh, motorcycles, uh, cars, where you have a lot going on outside of it, uh, things, as I say, things can happen very, very quickly, then go bad very, very quickly. Uh, I'm not an enormous fan of fire. Uh, I don't like high falls. They 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 make me nervous. Uh, I think in this day and age, you can use a descender on a person, which is a, uh, a controlled rate of descent on a wire, and we just paint the wire out later. So uh, I'm always very skeptical when I, I work with someone, a director or, or a producer that particularly wants to do a high fall in the old school way. So many people hurt themselves doing that and died. You know, you're missing the, missing the bag, hitting the bag wrongly, uh, hitting something on the way down, uh, jumping off the wrong way. It's it, it's a, I, I think it's a needlessly dangerous stunt that I'm quite happy if it goes away, <laughs> you know, that it, it should be done with a fan descender now. And, you know, that way you can stop someone right, right yep. before they hit the ground. And it looks fantastic. They can have full, you know, exactly the way you want them to be in the air or upside down head first without any, any concern of having to, because what you would have to do in, in the traditional high fall is just before you hit the bag, you do what was called a round off, which is turning around. So you hit it with your back, and lower, lower, you know, your yeah. bottom and lower, lower back, and, and hit it safely. You would never want to hit a hit a you know airbag or boxes a box catcher from eighty feet face first. That would be extraordinarily, you know, you'd break your nose and potentially your spine. So you you do a whip around, and 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 sometimes you know the whip around can take off the last thirty feet of it. 
or more because uh, you're turning at that point. So it's no the, the the stunt is actually only good for a very short short period anyway. So it's much better to do a wire. Uh, I don't like those. Uh, it's it, it's tricky. You know, it's 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 one. You know, you have to be aware of what is dangerous. But then when I'm making a film, I want to push to the very limit. So I like to push those. You know, push those difficult ones and then watch my stunt guys come up with answers. I'll work with them. We'll figure out how to do it safely. That's part of the fun challenge. You don't, you certainly don't write a script to try and be safe. Uh, knowing, knowing what I know as a stunt man allows me to push it to the absolute limits. Uh, and also, you know, over the years you work with directors and they shoot something badly and they, they, and you, you, you're standing over there going, God, look great from here, but you had the camera in the wrong place. I'll, I'll take a photo of this, make a make a sketch, and I'll use this on one of mine down the road. You know, uh, so you 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 know it can be quite good territory for experimenting and R and D. You know, working as a stuntman. I, I've been so lucky, David. It's been fantastic. You know, I can't anymore. I'm I'm too old now to hit the ground, as I found out uh, a month or two ago. But uh, you you know, for the longest time, I would direct pictures, and if I started to run out of cash, I'd go back to doing stunts, and it was it was a beautiful way to sort of uh, to, to heal up my finances, but also learn a little bit and get out there and see what other people were doing, and then I'd go back onto one of my indie films, and it was it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm I am I've led a blessed life, you know. Well, it's interesting because, you know, they refer to, uh, you know, lawyers who, who practice law and doctors who practice medicine. And the way that you describe directing is essentially like the practice of directing. You continue to learn as you do it. You know what I mean? And you learn from other people and you, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. Absolutely. So Absolutely. If, you, if you look at Ford's career, he remade three bad men three times three times uh once as a silent movie once as a black and white movie and once as a color movie with john wayne Con constantly in those days you didn't have to worry about the internet suddenly spewing things up from your past yeah. uh that they were gone he's you know you know there were no revival houses you know at that point so each time perfecting that story a little bit better making it better working out how he could tell it in a way that that you know what he fixed the mistake that he made he knew that the, there was a kernel of something wonderful in there and and by the time the 50s came around he made it with john wayne it, it's a wonderful movie it's fantastic you can see him working it working it uh it's it's important it's important also with your own career and your own path to continuously push yourself to where you're nervous you know where where you're least comfortable, you know. Let's talk about your uh, fantastic new feature film, One Ranger with Thomas Jane. Uh, you wrote and directed this one. How did the idea for this first come about? I, I loved Coogan's Bluff, which was, as I say, and I, I liked the way they did it with Branigan, with John Wayne going to England, you know, Chicago cop going to England in the 1970s. I thought that was fun. I, I grew up watching McLeod, you know, with Dennis Weaver sitting in my grandfather's lap. Uh, the Fish Out of Water, The Cowboy. I, I find I, I'm English. So I, as I said earlier, we have a love affair with the mythology of the American West with, with the cowboy. But in, in many ways, as much as any American love affair with that particular era in time, uh, it represents a freedom that... Uh, that is quintessentially American and isn't available anywhere else in the world. I don't believe, and and that and 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 that that cowboy, the guy on the horse, if it, if he wants to change town, he gets on his horse, rides to the next town, or if he wants to start a farm, he pitches a fence down. This this you know, it's a mythology, as I say, it wasn't wasn't ever particularly true, but but it's there and it's it, it's inescapable and it's an American thing, and I I like that and. Uh, and the amazing thing about the Texas Rangers is their veneration for the past. I worked on a TV show in, in Dallas called Walker, Texas Ranger for the long, longest time. And when I saw, you know, the statue of one Ranger, one riot, you know, the, the, the major Bill McDonald, you know, at the airport, the love, love field in Dallas, uh, they've taken it down now, but uh, I was, I was very aware of, of this and, and, started digging into it and you know the belt they you know from the gun belt through to the pants through to the boots through the type of you know hat the stetson uh the the badge which is a five peso mexican dollar which has been hammered out and cut to look like a you know star every part of their uniform 
is 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 a part of Western mythology, and it's it's enforced. They they have a very strict guideline to what they wear, and and it has to be. And I I find that interesting for someone outside of Texas. You know, now if you're in Texas, it doesn't mean anything because everyone dresses like that. But or, um, a lot of people do. But if you're outside of Texas in in the modern world, and you're seeing someone in cowboy boots, and then being told that they're actually a, a member of an elite, you know, law enforcement. Uh, uh, group that are actually you know one of the best at what they do in the world not not in not in that in texas not in america but in the world and what they do they, they are the guys that law enforcement call when they can't deal with certain aspects of of a uh, of a case uh it's even more exciting to know that they still dress in this you know the stetson with the with the hand uh, hammered leather woven belt with, requires two belts to wear the gun you know uh, this is cool stuff. This is really interesting. Now, that's all surface stuff. But if you dig even deeper into the mythology of how they were formed and what they did at the beginning of the career, people like Frank Kamer, who caught Bonnie and Clyde, these kind of incredible characters. And it's, and it's you know, there's huge books written on on legends of, of the, you know, the, of the Texas Rangers. Uh, I just found it something that we haven't seen in a while. I thought it was an interesting character. As I say, I'm drawn to characters. And I thought, let's let's invest in this character and let's put him somewhere out of water. It was going to be Thailand. We thought about we thought about uh, San Francisco as well, you know, but that was too much like like. And eventually, England sort of made itself uh, the place to go because I I I I'm from England and I we we could put it together and it sort of grew out of that. But it really grew out of the character of uh, Ranger Alex Tyree more than anything else. At what point did the great Thomas Jane come into the picture? Probably about a year into it, the script was written and developed pre-COVID. Uh, but Thomas liked the idea of it, you know, uh, and he read it and, and it appealed to him. He's a huge fan of uh, Westerns and, and the American West and, and comic books and sort of things that I like. And we got on very, very well. And he thought, he's, he said, I think this would be the one. This would be one we can do, you know. How excited was he about doing the full, full-on Texas Southern accent? That was all him, man. He loved it. He he lived in that character. He didn't break character the entire show. So the PAs in England that knocked on his door, they were convinced that's how he spoke, you know. His co-star in the film, uh, Dominique Tipper, was cast in uh, a role that was in incredibly important for the film to work, in my opinion. How did her name first come up for the character? Uh my fear was because once you meet Thomas, you realize he's quite intimidating you know, in his own way. Not, not he's not going to hurt anyone or yell at anyone. But it, but it's he, he needs to stay. You know, he needs that stimulus the whole time. And I knew we needed someone that was either had some balls, had some had some courage, had some had some you know wherewithal, which is which is tricky because uh, you know you have to work with them. Or was someone that he had worked with that knew him and knew what what they were getting it, themselves in, in into, uh, and so he he recommended her. I watched some of her work and thought she was marvelous, wonderful, really really liked her. Met her in person. Uh, she's just a very very hardworking, disciplined actress, uh, the kind that, that that I love working with, and they make you look good as a director. I thought she was great. And, and the same for John Malkovich, I mean, whom I love so much and who brings his gravitas to the film. I mean, I, I believe you've worked with him before. And I think there's a there, there's a funny story there maybe about some lines you rewrote of his. What's the story there? Uh, I, I, I love John. And uh, we talk movies and literature and books and things together. I, I, I just... I just absolutely love being around him. He's he's John Malkovich and talks like John Malkovich and uses grammar and syntax of John Malkovich. It's it's wonderful. It's really really fun. We put him in a little hotel in the north of England and uh, it was a little smaller than than we'd all expected. They didn't really have big hotels there, so so there was families all over the place and he'd just walk around as John Malkovich, very 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 aware of. It was through the through the through the restaurant, and you'd see people stop eating and, and look and look at each other and, and try and work out if that was who they thought that was. But of course, by then he's already left, uh, so it was a lot of fun. Uh, early on, when I did my first film with him, White Elephant, I had not met him, and we had no kind of relationship whatsoever. Uh, and I made the mistake of uh, making some line adjustments the night before filming, not realizing that his particular method of learning is. It, it happens quite a few weeks prior to filming. And, he, you know, I, as crazy as it sounds, that's that's actually how it works. Uh, and so he had been sent his changed dialogue at 11 o'clock at night. I came home to 
a very, very interesting and colourful email written in John Malkovich language uh, with a swear word every four words <laughs> telling me that that was not how he worked, that was not how anyone worked with him. And furthermore, it was not going to work this time out and he'd probably be on a plane back to France to finish his play if this <laughs> problem wasn't sorted out. What the actual, and then a lot more uh, interesting, <laughs> invective. And uh it's Thank funny because I could, I don't even know what it is, but I could hear it all in his voice. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to quote some of it, but it's very difficult because I can only quote three or four words at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Before there's a swear word, but it was uh, what the actual, and that was, and then we'll get into it from there. Yeah. Uh, but I kept it and printed it up, and I have it on in a little frame in my office because I feel it's a uh, a reminder to to check in with the cast the moment they're on board and keep you know and because on it was one occasion when I hadn't checked in with a cast member, the producers were handling it. I was slammed. I had Bruce Willis that day and uh, uh, and uh, Michael Rooker and Olga Kurilenko, and we'd done an action scene, so it was it was. I had my hands full and I left it to someone else to talk to the actor, which is a cardinal sin. <laughs> and so uh, at, at roughly midnight, I was reminded of my cardinal sin and <laughs> hence the framed uh, printed up email on my wall to remind me never to make, to break that particular rule again. Uh, but he's wonderful and, and, and really, really great to work with and, and a trooper all, all, you know, all the way through uh, it was a difficult it was a difficult one for him this one and he made it out to the north of england we were filming in a town called ipswich which is one that you know most people are you know only visit if they're paid to visit uh so it was i think he i think he enjoyed the color at all this film's got a, a pretty grand scale with some quite elaborate and intricate scenes throughout i mean there's a tank in one part of the film i mean what what what, what was the hardest part about shooting your action scenes and what is your process for for getting them right yeah the, 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 i found out the special effects man had his own tank he showed me a picture of it so then i begged him to bring it in for that one scene, one scene. uh and you know uh so the tank was there uh, uh you know it's been mentioned by quite a few reviewers so we probably should have used the tank more but uh but there you go it was it was an afterthought action uh on a film like this which is extraordinary tight budget really really tight schedule is just making sure everyone knows exactly what they're doing where they're supposed to be what's going to be working well you know the gun guy in england you have to have two gun guys when they come out to set the, in, yeah. in america you have one armor in england you have to have two yeah well we've learned about that one, lately. yeah one guy stays at the vehicle one guy stays on set meaning that at no point are the guns left un supervised in any any way shape or form they have a lot more stricter rules there and the guns we were working with the machine guns and belt feds which are particularly sort of warlike and and you know and and, and, and terrifying for for you know certain people so we we you know those two guys are earning more than you know your four camera ACs put together combined because there's you know that there is only a, a finite amount of people with the licenses for guns. So in a film where you have guns in every single scene, you then have to work out how I've only got budgeted for five days of gun guys. So you have to make sure that every, you know, when there's guns being fired, because the, the, the replica guns don't require a handler. Uh, so they could be every day, but wherever the guns fired, we had to make sure that it fell on one of those four or five days. So it becomes a very complex game of of scheduling and logistics and timing and making sure that you know the, the sun was going down at three o'clock in the afternoon so you have to make sure you had one building we had that was completely glass uh which is great well the sun was up in the air but the moment it went down we couldn't fake it anymore we couldn't put lights on it and pretend it was day for night because you've got all these huge windows so you were done filming at three o'clock which is nightmarish you know a short day is the worst yeah. thing a director the crew love it but the director yeah. will be chewing his arm off by that point so you're 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 really really focused on doing everything as efficiently as quickly as possible uh and then on top of that you're dealing with stunts special effects gunfire fighting knives vehicles so everything has to be safe which takes a bit, little bit longer as i'm sure you're aware you, you you know the crew needs to know what's going on so you have what's called a safety meeting you see people on their phone and talking and sort of drifting off into nowhere while that's going on. So, you know, most of them haven't listened at that point. So you have to go through it a second time individually with each department to make sure that they're aware of what's going on. Safety meeting is often only for the insurance's sake. And, and it drives me nuts because it takes a long time. 
and I end up having to do it again for everyone anyway, but it is a nature, it's the nature of what we do. Uh, and making sure people are in safe positions, no one's going to get hurt. The assistant director, who in, in the case on that film was, was very inexperienced, had never done an action film before. So myself and the stunt coordinators had to take him through how, how it was going to be handled and, and how things were going to work uh, and what speed we could go at that was a safe speed to work at, but was but was not jeopardizing anyone's safety. So those are the things that take priority. And then from that, you have to try and make it creative and interesting. And this camera setups look beautiful and the lighting looked nice. And, and that takes a certain amount of time. So the cohesion of all of those sort of elements, trying to work them all uh, so they work in unison and together like a sort of orchestra uh, and then you're ready to make the shot and everyone's ready to go and hopefully you only need to do it once uh, you know because you've got scripts going off all over the place and dust hits will be a huge sweep up and have to have the mops out and brushes and PAs are rushing there to tidy up the spilt flowers and blood that's spattered everywhere uh, and if you were to do a second take it could be you know an hour before you know or, or more before you're able to do a second take which in a short day is debilitating so it's an enormous amount of communication talking with people taking people through it when you're making a low budget film you're working with usually fairly inexperienced crew who have not done anything of the scale that i might be choosing to ask them to do so not only are you uh telling them how to, you know what it is you're explaining to them how to do what they should know what to do but they have never done it before because they've simply not had experience so you're letting them know this is where that tool that you have on your belt comes in useful because now you know if anything goes wrong you've got to you know and, and it's so it, it can be a nerve-wracking experience on so many different levels uh and you have to remain calm you have to remain collected and and approachable and uh uh, uh articulate which you know which which is tricky you know how involved were you with the ins and outs of the stunts and choreography i mean did you try to stay away or is that something you still wanted to be actively involved uh, in? we had a second unit running but i'd seen all of the car i watched the choreography Physically, I'd been there and watched what they were preparing for me mm -hmm. uh, in rehearsal with Thomas, with Jess Leowden, with the stunt uh, doubles and the stunt coordinator. Uh, I purposely didn't want to be involved in the second unit. I, I shoot up to the first punch and I shoot from the bloody ending. Uh, I shot that, uh, which established the lighting style, the setups, the set, the wardrobe. And from that point, they can get on with it. There's no reason for me to be there. They've shot previews with a video camera telling me which angles they're going to shoot. Thomas knows what he needs to do in terms of of, of uh, performance. Jess Leod and, and, and a second unit director who's worth anything will help making sure that they're aware of you know when their eyes should be wider or whether you know, it looks like they're focusing on the choreography, which is the worst thing in the world, uh, or they're in in the moment. So he's he, all he has to do is remind them to stay in the moment. But all they're really doing is filling in what what we've you know what they've already done for you know when, when you're directing actors in a scene you're looking for those sparks of interest and, and and little moments that you can make it when you're shooting an action scene you're not doing that you you have you know because everything's been prepared everything that's going to break has been prepared to break around them you can't suddenly say you know what i want to shoot on that wall instead because they won't have reinforced it they won't have breakaway you know wood there yeah. they you know but really the second unit director needs to stick to what we've all talked about ahead of time the lighting guys have lit it for them and then they go through it and they they you know so they did that based upon all of the notes i'd given them and what what we had planned and it's what i did for years and years i have no interest in going yeah. back to shooting that sort of thing uh but i was very heavily involved in 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 you know creatively designing it and just written in the script so which i wrote uh but i trust those guys a lot uh that was a guy called dan styles who's worked for me for three or four films and is very safety conscious is good with with choreography and it's good with the actors and the guy shooting it was rob polgar who shot second unit for me for three or four films and knows what i like and you know how i like a shot to be be framed and so it was it was good it was good that you know and and also the the, the sheer sort of tightness of the schedule meant that i you know i had to have two units running Sometimes three, but I, but I I do recall that we had an assistant director who was crying because it became too frustrating for him to run between the two sets, and I feel terrible about that. And to this day, I I I, I I'm sorry that he got to that point where it was so frustrating and upsetting for him. But we were, it was it was very complicated, and 
we had a stunt double for Thomas and then the real Thomas, but we didn't have a stunt double for Jess Lee Alden. So Jess was going backwards and forwards between the two sets. Mm. And it was the same wardrobe, but his makeup had to change because I don't know if you remember, but he has an eye popped out and scratches. And so that had to be watched and wiped off and then reapplied over there. Yeah, and so then, you had to, so all the consistency. Yeah, I think that was, the, worry that about was the cause of the tears. It was just very, you know, I think the makeup people got very mad at him and he 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 didn't know. He, yeah, it's it's easy to run into a continuity issue with all that yeah. kind of fun stuff. So, you know, it becomes very frustrating, uh, yep. you know, for, for a lot of people, but ultimately it all came together and I'm very proud of it as a film. It's a hell of a difficult film. No one goes to see a film and sees a, a listing of all the difficulties you had to deal with in making it or how low the budget was. They have to sit and watch the film for the sake of whether it worked or not. Yep. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud of what we pulled off. Uh, Lion, the fact that Lionsgate have got behind it is wonderful and they've given it a theatrical release, which is incredibly bold and ballsy and brave of them in this day and age where the only films that are getting theatrical releases are huge star driven pictures. They, they like this one. So well, they, they've, de- they've actually done pretty well with a number of things like that of late. Um, you know, I think that a, a Jesus revolution being one of them, I think that, they, you know, they, they've films that you wouldn't think would get that kind of thing. I think they've done, um, what, what turned out to be your favorite scene to shoot in the film? And was it the one you thought it would be when you were writing the script? Uh, but funnily enough, when, when I heard that this was going to get a theatrical of the size it was, I was terrified because, you know, I, it's like the film is so small. I've done, I, I've done bigger films than this, but this is what, this is the one that got chosen. It's, it is, it is interesting that, that Lionsgate chose to put it out theatrically, but yeah. You, uh, so my favorite, favorite scene in the picture, uh, there's two, there's, and they both involve Declan McBride, uh, who's played by Dean Jagger, who I think is, is, is an enormously interesting actor with a very subtle range. The first is, uh, when he visits the, the, the formerly Ukrainian base that's been taken over by uh, a Russian Cossack where he's buying his, his, uh, his artillery piece and they drive on in the Jeep. And I just, I, I like that moment. I like that. For me, that's interesting because that's when the, the film, skips and it's no longer just a film about good guys and bad guys and you start to realize this this fellow is is an international bad guy and you know and, and it's you know he's got something else going on and then the other the other scene i really enjoyed was the one with the uh the little choir singer in the in the church when he tries when mcbride visits an old uh accomplice of his who's played by patrick bergen who i'm an enormous fan of uh I actually paid for Patrick Bergen in this movie as well because uh, they refused to to, to pay uh, the production. Uh, and the scene that they share where he's trying to convince Dean to step away from whatever it is he's doing and take a back seat. And, he, and in doing that, he has him, his, his sort of little kid there, his grandson, Sing Foggy Doo, which is one of the old uh, Republican songs, but it's a very, very moving Irish song. And it does move him, but it still doesn't move him enough to to throw in the towel and quit what he's doing. And for me, that that's a, that's an important scene, and it, and it, and I liked it. It was very emotional. It was it was good. But you know, these these are these are interesting sort of scenes that that you have to sort of invest in to sort of enjoy. And I'm not sure I'm not sure how successful they were, but for me, the two scenes I found very good and fun to shoot and interesting. And felt that I felt that you you walk you walked away, and it felt like there was something interesting going on there. Uh, the rest of it was just hard work and it's such a blur because you're just working at warp speed and, you know, hoping to get the scene in the camera by the end of the day and not get arrested or have anyone get hurt. No, the film is fantastic. And I hope everyone in, in our audience will take the time to go watch it. Um, another film you've got coming up is, is Boudica with yeah. uh, Olga, is it Kurilenko yes. and, uh, and, and Clive Standen. Um, yes. My assistant producer is a bit of a historian, so he's extremely excited about this film. Um, you're both writer and director once again on this. Where did the idea come about, you know, to write this script about uh, a historical figure like Boudicca? And and can you tell us anything about it right now, or is it kind of still... I can tell you, I can tell you a certain amount about it. Uh, I grew up uh, very, very interested with the Boudicca mythology. Every English schoolboy or schoolboy child knew about it my era. Uh, uh, Boudicca, Boudicca was the warrior who pulled together for the first time all of the British tribes in AD 60 to fight against the colonial Romans who had who were who had colonized 
uh, Britain at that time. Now, Britain was not one country. It was a multitude of different tribes, Celts, Fisica, you know, different, different Iceni, different, different forms and, you know, who had no real relation to each other. Uh, a crime was committed against Boudicca, who at the time was, was allied to the Roman cause. And it was a crime of such despicable, uh, of it, such a despicable nature that it allowed her the moral sort of wherewithal to, to band a formerly dysfunctioning nation together in, as one. And at, at the height of her army, it was almost quarter of a million troops. And she took on, she took on the Romans and for about five battles, she, she beat them relentlessly. Uh, and then the army became unmanageable. They sent to Rome for one of these specialist guys who, you know, uh, Suetonius, uh, Paulinus Suetonius, who who came with his crack troops, and he set a trap for her, and and that was the end of that. It was a, it was a, she. He, I think, they executed all two hundred fifty thousand of her army, men, women, children, animals, uh, and that was the end of that. But for a brief flickering light, this 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 one person existed who who had the charisma and the wherewithal to pull everyone together. Uh, you know, Roman archae uh, British archaeologists or archaeologists in the UK can time a particular period because of the dark black line in the earth uh, that her looting and burning left, you know, to this, to this day, because, you know, the, 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 the sand and clay was, it was turned to almost a glass material with the high heat of, yeah. of the, uh, you know, of, of Colchester, London, uh, Colognum, these different places that she, she cities at the time, there were Roman cities that were inhabited by uh, Romans who'd been there, you know, almost a hundred years, you know, uh, and, and had property and slaves and and had subjugated or, or pushed away the the, the 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 natural inhabitants so she went into these places and, and and just just destroyed them burned them to the ground uh didn't even pillage them in many cases literally just just burnt them uh and i, I found the story very interesting uh in in victorian era looking for someone who was like victoria as a as a form of of uh political sort of uh uh uh, propaganda. They they had rediscovered her. So there's a beautiful statue of Boudicca outside the Houses of Parliament in England, and we actually use that in the movie. Uh, and and she became a figurehead again. She's she's Britannia. She's rule Britannia. This is basically Boudicca with the helmet on. It's on on the coins to this day, and rule Britannia, which is the uh, the national anthem. Uh, it it's 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 Boudicca. It's all based around that mythology and that, and, and that sort of story. I, I found it even more interesting. I'm not sure why I, I took such a personal connection to it, but my, my youngest daughter's middle name is Boudicca. It was a, so it's been a, it's been a while. It's a lot of my heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears in the movie. Mm. And it's, and it's something that I hope people, people see for what it is, which is a, a passionate retelling of, of a, uh, of a, of, of a here to less than well, presented story there's been lots of versions of it i think they're all terrible <laughs> i haven't seen one that, that caught my interest in any way at all and it took me a long time to figure out how to tell the story and i think i have done and i i, I hope people enjoy it olga kurilenko is someone i had worked with before and i knew she had the capacity to do something like this she's she's incredible she she absolutely inhabits the role and is very very dedicated very disciplined uh, you know and and really threw herself into the action which is no small thing because you know fighting with a bronze you know with a sword a heavy sword is not something for the faint of heart i mean it's extraordinary and the guys she was fighting all had armor on and helmets and you know it's it, you know it's it, it was a brutal brutal shoot but the interesting factor was where we shot was 20 miles away from colchester we're at norfolk in in and and uh it just happened to be where we ended up filming because a friend of mine owned the property and uh, I was talking to him, he said, no, no, she, she galloped here. She was here. We have Roman artifacts that we found all over the place. And you're, you're 20 miles from, you know, the first place that she burned, you know, that's where the Ro there's a museum there for the Roman, for the Roman, uh, uh, temple that she burnt to the ground. It's now this beautiful museum in, in, in Colchester. Uh, so I feel that she inhabited the film to a certain degree. I maybe that may be too much mumbo jumbo for many, but for me, it film it instilled in me the need to tell the story properly as well. I really, really felt that. Uh, and and something looked after us because I love the movie. I think it's the greatest thing I've done. I, I'm really, really 
really proud of that film. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of it, David. So what else should we be on the lookout for in the next uh, year or so from you? Have you got some other things coming up? Well, Savannah releasing Boudicca at the end of the year. Uh, and then early next year, we have a film called Chief of Station with Aaron Eckhart, which is a, a throwback to the sort of Cold War spy films that we all, uh, of a certain generation, remember from pre-Gorbachev, pre-Reagan, you know, Reagan, yeah. you know, before the wall came down, uh, which, you know, I, it was great fun to delve into that. I, I watched, you know, the, Bridge of Spies is the most recent one that everyone will, will know about of, of this generation. But you go further back, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, even most of the James Bond films, the, you know, the fourth protocol, all, 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 there's, a, there's a great, you know, bedding in it. And the most beautiful thing of all, which I really liked is uh, in modern spycraft, the reliance upon uh, internet and telephone has gone out the window because it's too easy. Mm-hmm. So now spies are going back to the old, you know, dead drops and, and, and brush passing and, all these wonderful techniques that was perfected in Cold War, you know, uh, Germany and Russia after the Second World War. You know, when you had this, you had this antagonism between East and West, and uh, and so it, you know, but it's a modern setting, but they're still using these older techniques now, which have come back, you know, and almost come back around. So they they can't even make a telephone call on a, on a cell phone because it's 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 too easily tracked. You know, they'll pinpoint yeah. them. They'll be easily compromised. Up, a hand grenade on their head, you know. So yeah. it's all, you know, the stone age is the way to do it now. And, and, and so I went back and watched tons of these, these pictures, the John le Carre films. All this off the grid stuff. By. Oh my God. It was fantastic watching and realizing we can, we can bring a lot of this into the present. So I tried to put in as much as possible. Uh, Aaron Eckhart is wonderful. Uh, Nick Moran, who's also in uh, One Ranger, he plays the Russian Cossack, is also in that. He plays uh, the lead. He was the lead in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, which a lot of people may, may remember. Uh, and he's wonderful in it. And uh, Olga Kurilenko came back and Alex Pettifer, who I, I'm now doing another film with, uh, plays the antagonist and does a really scary good job. And it's wonderful. I think it's a bit of a return for him to... It's a big budget. We have car chases and shootouts. It's a, it's really, really rather good. And I, I loved working in in Budapest, Hungary. It was a, uh, it was a wonderful place to shoot. Short days. It was nighttime by three o'clock. So you you got to be yeah. You got to go in with a really good plan. You can't be sitting around scratching your chin, wondering, waiting for inspiration. One of my great, great sort of loves is is Sam Peckinpah and his pictures. But I, but you know when I first came to Los Angeles, I, I have eight or ten biographies on him. I, I I searched out people that had worked with him to to get anecdotes to listen. Uh, and Cliff Clark Coleman is a stuntman. His father was Cliff Coleman, who was the first assistant director on the Wild Bunch. And they said that when he was preparing that shootout, he had no plan whatsoever, and literally literally took three or four days to sort of scratch his head and come up with a way of shooting it. Uh, Jesse, I mean. Thank you, thank you so much for for joining us tonight. I mean, and you've been so generous with your time and and sharing so much uh, great information about. I mean, just the 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 craft uh, itself. I, I just we, we really appreciate it. I hope there's something that's helpful to you know to to people or interesting or slightly slightly of 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 something you know of help maybe. Uh, really a pleasure talking to you. Great questions, David. Hopefully, we can do it again. Yes, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, director Jesse Johnson. 